we begin tonight. If there are any uh, thoughts that you had uh, from the passage, Genesis 40 and 41, that weren't part of the questions, we could uh, discuss those briefly here as we start off. Yes. In regards to Potiphar. Yes. It doesn't say it, but from what I understand, um, number one, the Egyptians were quite promiscuous. Okay. Um, so the fact that uh, Potiphar's wife attempted to do this, from what I have read, wasn't uncommon. Shows uh, between that and the fact that Joseph was able to do anything but serve Potiphar, it showed a huge distinction between how they practiced their faith. And um, one of the comments that I read, uh, Jim Berg was talking about this, is that it coming right after chapter 38, he said, I thought it was interesting, the reason for chapter 38 is to show why God took Israel out of Palestine, out of Canaan, because they were beginning to do whatever they wanted to do, and they were acting like the heathens. But when we brought them into Egypt, they were only allowed to practice their faith. They weren't allowed to participate in some of these things that the Egyptians would, or they would have been killed, or I just thought it was interesting tying those things together, how there was that separation between faith and um, also thinking that Potiphar could have killed Joseph. So I wonder if he knew right. that his wife really was the one who caused him trouble. Along those lines, I was, I was noticing something this afternoon, and maybe go back and visit it later. Look at chapter 40 and verse 3. It says he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard. And chapter 39 and verse 1 said Joseph was taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. So I think we usually have the idea that Joseph's in a prison that's like over in some other part of the city. But it seems like he's in prison that's in some way attached to Potiphar's household. And the other question that I had, and I'm not really sure if anybody can say for sure, but something that I thought about, when it says kindness in the sight of the chief jailer, is that the same person as the captain of the bodyguard, the same person as Potiphar? I would lean toward no, but it seems like Joseph has basically like moved down a step. Like he was over the household right under Potiphar, and now Potiphar the jailer, Joseph's right under the jailer in terms of authority. And so he's moved down a level, but God's still exalted him to the highest position in that sphere where he's put him. So there's just something else interesting I was noticing this afternoon as we were rereading the passage. So any other thoughts from the chapter before we get into the questions? All right, so question one, are there any similarities between Joseph's dreams, Pharaoh's servants' dreams, and Pharaoh's dreams, how did they respond? What's different about these dreams from dreams we might have? Yes. Yes. Okay. 
What are they? It's interesting they're on the tombs. Okay. Good. What else, Jonathan? You had something? Okay. Yeah. Good. What was the what were the responses, for example, of Joseph's brothers to his dreams or of let me ask the kids this. How did Joseph's brothers respond to his dreams? How did Pharaoh's servants or even Pharaoh, what sort of attitude did they have toward their dreams? How does it describe them? Yes. Okay, good. They had hatred toward Joseph for his dreams, so that was kind of a negative response. What about uh, the cupbearer baker and then Pharaoh himself? What was their response to the dreams that they had received? Before they're interpreted, but their initial response. Braden? Yeah, sad and confused, okay. Good, good. What's another common thing between all of these sets of dreams? How are they, how do the people around them hear about them or understand what they meant? Jonathan? Okay. Yeah. And who do they tell? Who's the one who explains it to them in all three cases? Joseph. Now, obviously, the first one was one that he had, but he's the common interpreter through whom God is working in all three of these cases. So, yes? That was interesting. Okay. For each one, they were not so apparent if you just heard them on their own without the translation. Sure. But it seemed like, so you had the sheaves, something that Jacob's family could relate to, mm-hmm. and then you had the, the vine for the cupbearer. And the, you know, each dream had something that they could relate to that was some type of symbolism. And it, again, it wasn't so apparent, but once you heard the That's actually one of the arguments that people have made for Moses being the author, because someone would not necessarily have invented something about, you know, why would they pick the imagery of cows and grain for Egypt? That's something that someone who was living in the land of Egypt, I'm not sure that's a strong argument, but it's just an argument that people had made. This was the sort of imagery that would have appealed to them, that they would have connected with, and so Moses is recounting a fact, not necessarily, not inventing something that doesn't make sense. So. All right, uh, moving on. Oh. The dreams, the, the last point there about what's different between those dreams and dreams we might have, there are segments of Christianity that will say that dreams today can still mean something for us. And as we've talked about before, the primary concern with that is that we end up with competing sources of authority. Here's what the Bible said. Here's this dream that I had. And a lot of times people will start chasing more after dreams and understanding dreams and searching, trying to have more dreams, more so than what God has clearly said in His Word. The one caveat that I have thought about in connection with that 
is when it, in uh, Acts 2, it talks, it quotes from, I think, Jeremiah, where it talks about that there was a day coming when uh, your old men will see visions and your young men will dream dreams. I do think that if that is in connection with the end times, which I think is probably what it's talking about, there is a sense in which God is going to speak to people in a direct way at the closing out of human history that he's not presently doing today because we have the completed word of God. And so, yes? I don't know if it has anything to do with that, but I follow this thing on Facebook called One for Israel. Okay. And it's about Jewish people coming to Christ. Mm-hmm. And I am astounded how many of them talk about having a dream and Jesus visiting them in their dream. Yeah. So, yeah, not saying it has any relation saying we can validate it, but it's it's eerie how many of them say that. Okay, Paul? There's a number of accounts similar in the Muslim world where yeah. they're converted to Christianity is the Jewry. Yeah. 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 So I, I think I think the biblical balance is this. I'm very much a cessationist. Like I don't believe that God is working miraculously today in the way that He was in the time of Moses, Elijah, and Elisha, and Jesus and the prophets. I do think we have to recognize that God certainly has the power to work miraculously in the world in which He has made. Sometimes things that we deem to be miracles, we call them that simply because we don't have an immediate explanation for them. So we recognize that. And some of them are generally things that we can't explain. And so I think in those cases, the primary thing that we have to keep calling people back to is, here's what God has clearly said. Here's what God has said we ought to do. So I have people that I know who are connected with charismatic churches, and I've said, all right, I don't think the Bible, I don't think we ought to be speaking in tongues currently. But if you're going to do that, here's what tongues is, biblically speaking. Here's how it's regulated in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So if that's what it is, and that's what you're doing, I'm not going to say that you're sinful for doing it. I just think that, you're, I think that you're misunderstanding some things about bringing Scripture together. Again, my point is simply to say, Joseph's dreams and these other dreams were God speaking to someone specifically in a way that he does to us through his word today, whereas then he did it through dreams and perhaps in the end times we'll do so again, but not at this present time in human history. Secondly, when we see how the dreams are fulfilled for the cupbearer and the baker, what do you expect to be true for Pharaoh and Joseph? This isn't a trick question. Maggie. Okay, yeah, that their dreams will come true as well. And uh, Kelly pointed, me out, pointed out to me this afternoon, Joseph's dream was not really fulfilled. We, like, I was latching onto the fact of the exaltation part of it, and that clearly happens in this chapter. But the actual point at which his father and brothers and all of them bow down, that hasn't taken place yet. That'll, that's an upcoming chapter. So uh, I forget exactly what I said this morning, but it's, it's, we're getting there to Joseph's being fulfilled entirely. Okay. All right. So thirdly, why do you think God put Joseph in charge of a household and then a prison before putting him in charge of Egypt? This is one of those 
We can think about it. The text doesn't specifically say. I think it's helpful for us to pause and think about because I think there's perhaps parallels in our own lives. Braden? Okay, strengthen, test, build his faith. Okay, that's one of them. Did you have, that, did you take yours? Okay. What else, Kevin? I mean, that's a, that's a common observation that I think a lot of the commentaries make, and I think it's valid. You're going from being a shepherd boy to being in charge of Egypt. There probably needs to be some intermediate steps along the way, right? And so God's preparing him to do what he wants him to do. Okay? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Could be. Corey? Yeah, yeah, no, I think those are those are good observations. Oh. Stemming from preparing him, I think too, in the positions that he was in, he was really able to learn the economy of Egypt and the culture and what really made it run, running Potiphar's house, and even being in the, in the prison. You, you can learn a lot being around the, the poor and the, the lowly of what, how things are run. So it just seems like it was more than just uh, him learning through leading. It was him learning the, the underbelly, in a sense, of, of what was going on in Egypt to be able to have all those ideas. Oh, we do this, 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 this. Right. And God could have just said, here's the plan, say it to Pharaoh. But I think there probably is a sense of, I mean, God works just like he works with individual personalities of people who recorded books of scripture. God worked through Joseph in presenting that plan to Pharaoh. Jerry, did you have something? Alright, number four. What similarities do you see between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus? Like I said, I'm not sure that I could think of a New Testament passage that makes all those parallels, but what are some of them? Braden? Yeah, I mean, Joseph is his father's favorite, then he's a slave, and then he's second in command in Egypt. Jesus, obviously, is in heaven, humbles himself, comes to earth, 
exalted again to heaven after the crucifixion, the resurrection. So that's, I think, one of the, probably the, one of the big, like, if you look at trajectory of their life parallels. What are some of the other details within their lives that are interesting parallels? Huh? Just as Christ always said, I'm not doing my own will, I'm doing the will of the Father. Yeah. Thinking about Joseph always saying, it's not me interpreting the dream, it's God. So I think always putting God where he should be in their lives. Okay, good. Any other ones? Paul? Okay. Yeah. Right, right. Good. Anything else? Yeah, Jerry. And there's a little bit of a sense of, like, God moving a lot of things into the right spot to make this all come together, right? God both put Joseph where he wanted him to be and brought the plenty and then the famine. God orchestrates all the details of the coming of Christ. So, I mean, there's, there's things about God's sovereign work and bringing all those circumstances together. So, I, again, I'm sure there's other ones that we could think of. Right. Do they in Hebrew, though? Yeah, I think they do. But they begin with Y in Hebrew. But. Um, anyways, uh, I think that it's important for us to see these things not in the sense of any sort of weird, mystical, like, like when people start like counting numbers in the Bible and coming up with strange ideas. Yeah, it's not that kind of a thing. It's simply like, there are, there are cycles and foreshadowing and anticipation that we see in the Old Testament that when we come to Christ, any Israelite that's paying attention and thinks back over their history is like, look at what God's doing now. You know? so, and I think we miss that sense of things sometimes because, for one, we're very familiar with the New Testament, not as much with the Old, and for another, because we don't always see those patterns, those broad patterns. I think it's helpful for us to consider them. How then do these scenes from Joseph's life fit into the overall theme of blessing we've seen worked out in Abraham's family? There's a number of different directions we could go with this, but just sort of review this theme of blessing that we see, especially from Genesis 12 through 50. Corey? Okay, good. Huh? Just God, despite the sin of his people, continued to rescue them, to deliver them, to uh, bless them, even though they continued the cycle of obedience and disobedience. Okay. And that cycle gets very short when we come to something like the book of Judges, but, but here it's a little bit more, more stretched out, maybe. Paul? Yeah. 
Good, so moving on to the application questions. We're gonna jump away from Genesis for one moment. Uh, I know, it's, it's jarring, I'm sorry. There's another J for you. Um, on number one, Wednesday we looked at Psalm 62, and I just wanna talk about this quickly because it does interestingly tie in a little bit to the passage that we looked at today, but um, what According to those three passages, why are riches so untrustworthy compared to God? How are you trusting in money today? What are some ways that that crops up in our daily lives? Okay. Good. What else? What else from those verses and or from Psalm 62? So just, if you weren't here Wednesday night, Psalm 62, David has people who are opposing him, and the idea is there's, there's rich people who oppress, there's poor people who steal, all of them are set in opposition to David, and whether they're rich or whether they're poor, their money is not going to help them when God's judgment falls on them for opposing his people. And so one of the themes that I wanted to pull out a little bit more from that is, so how do we then trust in riches in our daily lives? Because I felt like, first of all, I could have given you better examples, and second of all, there may be other ones that you can think of that I didn't. Braden? There's, the, there's sort of the, the low-hanging fruit, the easy ones, like if you never go to church because you're always at work, if you, you know, th those kinds of things. But I think it's more subtle ways, too. Like, um, for example, uh, it says, Fathers, bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So if I say that... In a, in a goal of saving money, I'm going to spend three weeks on this project, and my having spent that time on that project keeps me from helping my kids through an important matter, spiritually speaking, and pointing them to what God has said in and all those sorts of things. Saving money is not bad. But when it's driven by a kind of pride or a kind of love of money, that causes me to neglect other things that are more important. Bob and I were talking more of the service about, and some, we were talking about time, right? You can say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this thing, and it's going to save me this amount of money, but it's going to take up three hours of my day. What am I potentially neglecting because I want to do this that's at least a little bit driven by a love of money, a fear of not having money, a concern about the future that maybe is a lack of trust in God? 
that's kind of coming out of a few chapters from now in Habits of Grace. There's a, there's a chapter on money. And one of the things I was just skimming through, looking through the end of the book to kind of see how things landed as far as when it would end the series. And one of the things was we sometimes are so focused on money because we're so worried that we're not going to have what we need when we need it. And some of that has to do with not actually trusting God the way that we ought to. So, yeah, plan for the future. Be wise. All those sorts of things. But when we hang on too tightly to things of this life and they consume our thoughts and our attentions and our all of that, that's not good. Yes? And that's, I think, the principle through the vast majority of Scripture, Old and New Testament, is hold on to things loosely. Yeah. Because your hand is closed, you can't give and you can't receive. If your hand is open, you can do both more freely. Okay. You should write a book on that. Or what book did you know? Yeah. <laughs> good. That's a good. That's a good thought. All right. Uh, moving on to number two under the application. This sort of picks up from last week. We didn't really discuss it. But one of the key points that I wanted to bring out was this idea of how does loving your neighbor help you to resist sexual temptation? Because I think both of those ideas are brought together in Romans 13 and they were brought together in Genesis 38 and 39. Paul. Okay. Done. Right. Okay. Sometimes people will justify sinful actions by saying, but I really love this person. But the reality is, love and sin are incompatible in a way that one of them can't be true. So in that case, it would be the love's not real because your love's not going, love does no harm to another, love doesn't lead a person into sin. And so that sort of rationalization, which is a very common one in our day and perhaps in our own minds at different points in our lives, it doesn't line up with what Scripture says. It's not true. So any other thoughts on that, Paul? Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Good. Any other thoughts on that question? All right, moving on to number three. Looking at Joseph's life, the all of these chapters we've covered so far, but especially some of the details from chapter 40. Have you ever felt like your life as a Christian was a waste or unfair in some way? What specific ways does this attitude make you doubt God? How does your perspective change at different points in your life? What truths from God's Word correct wrong thinking about life's value? So kind of a bunch of questions. Hopefully we see that they're somewhat connected there. Your thoughts on that? Well, saying it's right to think of it as a waste, but I'm sure it crosses our mind at some point or another. What else? 
Yeah, yeah, we're all, we're all good. What, what, what other ways does this, like, if you've been where Joseph is in our story that we looked at today, at some point in that, if he's like any of the rest of us, there had to be a point at which he said, is it worth it to keep doing what God wants when it's not accomplishing the things that I think that I ought to have? Or is it, um, how do we put it this way? Not seeing that God is doing something, like, like the 13 years, like, like there's a perspective at the back of our mind that he actually started doing the thing that he was supposed to do at age 30 when he started doing ministry, right? But the reality is he was doing things for God and God was doing things through him for those 13 years before he was put in the position of power. And so they were both not a waste, even though they were not necessarily, if you were writing out, here's the things I want to happen in my life. I want to be sold as a slave. I want to go to jail. I want to be lied about and betrayed and mistreated. That's not the things that we would pick. There's a sense in which people did sin that occasioned those things, but the circumstance was not bad in terms of what God was doing in and through Joseph. So, yes? Based on everything that we have, Joseph, to me, I think ever since I first got saved, I have felt so inadequate, especially thinking about what you pointed out this morning. Him standing before Pharaoh, here's his chance. He doesn't say anything about himself. Yeah. Right. I mean, we think about that. I mean, if it, if it was us, it'd be like, what's going on? You know, and I'm not trying to make too much light of it, but seriously, it, this guy is the reason that he was there an extra two years, humanly speaking. But because he was there an extra two years, and God did what he did with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was in a position of need, look what God did. And so maybe that's part of what Joseph realized and why he didn't, you know. Mike. You know, when you look back at that study and you get older, you realize that some of the time that you thought it might have been a waste, some of the things that you did. Um, but then you find out what God did with that time. You know, it's, it's not about you in particular. Yeah. Um, many times in my life I felt maybe I shouldn't have done that. But it's not about me. It might have been about something completely you don't even know about. All right, number four. Considering Joseph's response to Pharaoh, have you in front of unbelievers sometimes taken credit for God's work? Why? How would things have looked different if you had pointed to God or shared the gospel with that person versus acting selfishly? So let me give you an example from um, when I was in college. I was working for 
I was doing two things which were kind of interesting and slightly incompatible. One was I was doing a church internship at a church down in Ohio. And at the same time, I was also working for a Mormon guy doing computer repair. And in the context of that, I was at a lady's house working on her computer, and she started going on about how, you know, terrible everything in the world is, and all these other sorts of things. And when we're confronted with those sorts of opportunities, we can give the answer that we know is not going to bother someone. Oh yeah, I just I you know, or like commiserate with them or or agree with them or that sort of thing. Or, like Joseph did to Pharaoh, we can take God's truth and correct that incorrect assumption and point people to God in that kind of a moment. That's kind of where I'm going with this question. So what other examples come to mind from your life or from stories that you've heard? What what did this question make you think of? Corey. Or Kim, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was getting my hair cut at a, the place down on 12 Mile there. The Every once in a while. Yeah. For those of us who are still afflicted with <laughs> something that needs to be trimmed on the top of our heads. So I was talking with the guy, and... Just talking about some of the things that had gone on in the last year, year and a half. And this is a guy from, by his own account, been overseas, seen a lot of terrible things in Afghanistan and wherever. And he was saying something about, like, he said something like, uh, did he had respect for me? Or, like, he felt like, not that I was a better man than him, but, but one of those kind of parallels in terms of, like, I think what you've gone through is harder than what I went through. And so my first response was sort of to like, because that catches us off guard and, and we don't want to like, we feel awkward in those sorts of things, I, would, I just started like shaking my head or whatever. He's like, no, no, no. And so in that opportunity, there would be an opportunity to say, yeah, not me, but God. Those are the sorts of things where I think we can follow Joseph's example and say, I'm not perfect. I often fail, 
But, by God's grace, if we do well in something, point to God in His grace. Encourage people. Acknowledge Him in it. And we went on to have good conversation about, you know, the church where he went and just the importance of, of studying God's Word and thinking about those things. And so hopefully it was an encouragement for him too. But, but in those sorts of circumstances, yeah, we want to sort of blow it off a little bit, make light of it, not acknowledge it. And the, the easy path to move from being awkward because we feel like the spotlight is being pointed to us is to say, well, it shouldn't be pointed to me. It's God. You know, and I know football players and whoever else are like, you know, but there is a sense in which for those who genuinely do it without hypocrisy, that is what we ought to do. Point to God, not to ourselves. Any other thoughts as we wrap up, Mike? And like I said this morning, you don't always get the promotion like Joseph did. Not everyone makes it through the physical sickness or trial. God is still present in those circumstances as well. And our response in those circumstances or in the ones where things turn around can be used by God as we point people to God as we see Joseph doing in this passage. So, All right. Let's pray, and then we'll sing our last song together. Lord, as we look at your truth together and just see these rich examples of your people, good and bad, for us to learn from, certainly we see admirable qualities in Joseph, but they ought to immediately point us to the fact that you are the God whom Joseph followed. We see... Uh, sinful tendencies in people in the passage today or in the one that we looked at last week and they ought to immediately point us not to pride that I didn't do this, that, or the other thing like the people in that story but to humility to say but here are all the ways that I sin and again to be driven to turn to you in repentance and so Lord we pray that as we go through these things that we would be drawn closer to you either way in, in whatever way we are convicted or encouraged by these stories. And we just pray that you will help us to keep them in our mind this week, that they'll affect how we live, that we will go through this week noting times at which we love money more than you, being aware of times when we are tempted and hopefully being safeguarded both by the realization that uh, to be tempted in these ways is to reject you, but also to show hatred toward those around us. And then finally, from the passage tonight, you would help us to be bold, to acknowledge you 
in the opportunities that you give us in life. Point people to you as you have worked in the circumstances of our lives. We pray that um, you're just blessed this week and it'll be a fruitful one of us encouraging one another and uh, meeting and following up with unsaved people that we know and that you'll be honored in it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.